You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Good afternoon. My name is Dharmendra Kanani, Director of Strategy and your moderator for this conversation on building climate resilience as we've you know, pitched it cooperation, collaboration and foresight. This is the second in a series of our discussions and events around building resilience and how do you build resilience and in the context that we find ourselves in um, where the, the nexus between climate and security is increasingly evident uh, and people are making sense of it more and more and I suppose this conversation is that how how, how is that thing, that facility, resilience, whether you call it the ability to come back, the ability to bounce back, the ability to sustain and adapt and respond to shocks and crises, how does that happen in terms of people, communities, policy making and institutions? And so what we wanted to discuss with you today is how does that happen and what are the things that are taking place right now and the lessons that we need to learn to move forward in terms of trying to connect what some of the issues are around climate security, debate the kind of issues that are pertinent um, in, in this particular milieu, whether it's that's in Europe or the globe, but also try and think about the kind of change in policy and practice that we need to be developing, uh, at least thinking about. So without further ado, we have an interesting set of uh, speakers for you. Um, there, The details are in the, the program that you have. And I'm going to start with um, Oli, Oli Brown. He's a senior program coordinator for disasters and conflicts at the UN Environment. And I suppose, as I said in my opening remarks, it feels like most definitely that um, climate change is the new security threat, or it feels like that. And I know from the people who are at the climate change end and the security end would say, actually, that's just a ridiculous notion to even think about. But when we think about what's happened in the Sahel region, when we think about Syria, when we think about what's happened in Europe in terms of uh, climate change and security, is it the new security threat and climate change? And actually, is enough being done to adapt to it and respond to it by institutions both here and internationally? a couple of huge questions in there. Yes, I understand thank that. You, thank you very much. I'm, I'm going to give you a classic UN answer, which is yes and no. It is and it isn't. I mean, it is, it is a, a, a huge security threat, but I would say it's a, a human security threat. So it's a, it's, it's a, it has an impact across the world in all sorts of different ways. And the way I think of it is that it's fundamentally redrawing the maps of the world. Um, and obviously, that's going to have a massive impact on society, on politics, on people, on communities. It's redrawing where rain falls, where food can grow, where people can live, where borders, where maritime borders go to. Um, so it, it sort of follows that it's gonna have a massive impact on a whole range of different issues. And at the very extreme end of that scenario, it can have an impact on hard security, hard security kind of considerations as well. So that, uh, that where it intersects with poor management of the, of, of the environment or, or politics or the politics of discrimination or racism, then you can see very easily, very quickly, how these pressures multiply existing threats um, to create significant political issues. But regardless of that, it makes a whole series of different things very, very, uh, a whole series of different challenges more pressing. In a sense, I think that's, it's quite useful to think about the, the coming impact of climate change. When I think to how we used to 
talk about development and development challenges. We used to find a problem, design a solution, develop a solution to that problem, and then try and implement it, which means that by the time we were trying to do anything about it, we were already 10, 15 years out of date. What thinking about climate change and resilience helps us to do is think about how the world is going to be. And the world is going to be a, a very different place to how it is now, not only because of climate change, but because of a whole range of other things. We have huge changes in the world that we have to, that we have to manage. Um, I think 60% of the buildings that are going to exist in 2050 haven't yet been built. So there's, there's massive changes ahead. And thinking about climate change and the resilience we need to put in place to, to, to deal with that is, is really important. Now, I think it's not a security threat in the sense of there's nobody to bomb with climate change. It's not a classic security threat. And our colleague from NATO can talk about that as well, in the sense of, of having an enemy, having a, a conflictual relationship that you can deal with. But that means that we need to address the whole range of different things which comes to the second part of your question, are we doing enough around it? And I mean, clearly we're not. There's two things we need to do. Firstly, to avoid dangerous climate change, um, to keep within a, some kind of two degree limit, even though there are a whole series of feedback loops where we could reach to some kind of uncontrolled um, scenario with, with, with a, a range of impacts that are very difficult to anticipate and, and, and address. So we, we, need to, we need to do what we're doing um, in terms of uh, imp you know, imp um, implementing the Paris Agreement even more forcefully. But at the same time, we're still subsidizing the fossil fuel industry to the tune of almost half a trillion dollars a year. So we need to think about the whole way that we're mitigating and reducing our greenhouse gases, but at the same time also thinking about adapting to, to climate change, uh, and, but also adapting to the whole range of other impacts that are gonna change the world over the next years. Okay, I'll come back to you, and, and perhaps there'll be questions from the audience also about um, what, the, what the practical steps that could be taken in terms of actually building resilience, especially amongst communities in conflict and disaster uh, zones or and areas when they're kind of hit. But I'm sure that'll come up in the debate. Thank you very much. I'm going to move over to Michael, um, Head of Energy Security at NATO. Um, I suppose there's an obvious question here, uh, really. It, it's about um, our national armies adapting, changing their thinking, given given that um, when climate crises address ourselves, or when we find ourselves in that, the army has to uh, has increasingly had a role. It, are things changing, and are, are people really adapting in, in national armies to this kind of new nexus that's, that's emerging? Uh, yes, to some degree, certainly they do. Uh, as you said yourself, uh, the military is often the first responder in humanitarian relief uh, situations, mm. and uh, whether these are climate change induced or for other reasons, they are there and the military has to deal with it. Um, as far as NATO is concerned, we've made the statement in 2010 in the strategic concept that climate change is a problem. Uh, and we looked at it from two sides. One, uh, it's a threat multiplier. In other words, it, uh, it goes along the lines of what Oli said. It, it makes other problems worse or it could make other problems worse. Um, and the second um, dimension is that it transforms the environment in which the military has to operate. See humanitarian relief operations, for example. Um, that said, I think uh, climate change, even though it's a global phenomenon, it, uh, it affects different countries at different times and in different intensity. And this means that a nation that is, doesn't really see climate change as an immediate problem will probably focus less on it and uh, its army will or armies will focus less on it. But uh, overall, I think, yes, it is, it is happening. Um, 
uh, one has to add that, uh, or, or yeah, to add that uh, the military, of course, is not in the prevention business. It's basically in the adaptation business, uh, which is why you don't see that much uh, in terms of, let's say, publications. Uh, you have a couple of American retired officers who usually, after they retire, you know, find enlightenment and then talk about climate change. But, but uh, they also it's cannot a shame tell you. The president administration cannot, it's, as long as you're in the down. business, don't do it. Yeah. I once tried to write a paper and they made make a link to between the Arab Spring and climate change, and that paper didn't go very well. <laughs> um, so uh, it's it's about it's about adaptation, um, and I think that adaptation is already happening um, in terms of building um, uh, awareness. I would say uh, to to push this adaptation further. I think uh, NATO as an institution has a number of tools um, to to help. First of all, internally. Um, Building, uh, doing more analysis um, on on future security, on the future security environment. Uh, so here, climate change, I believe, will play a greater role in the in-house analysis to push nations, you know, to to uh, to certain conclusions. Um, then we are now in the business of also looking at energy efficiency standards. Uh, the military cannot do much about climate change, but I think the military uh, can at least uh, look at technologies that, while maintaining the priority of being military effective uh, can also be a, a, a less of a burden on the environment. Military activities are a burden on the environment and exercises, what have you, and there are ways on, uh, to, 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 to minimize that, that, say, that ecological footprint. Uh, and finally, of course, we have a huge uh, outreach program. We have partners, more than 40 partners from all over the world, and they consider NATO to be, in many respects, the gold standard of, of standardization. Uh, and by, by bringing in um, or familiarizing them with energy efficiency as a military um, goal, actually, I think we can also help a little bit raising awareness in the militaries of non-NATO countries. Okay. And apologies. I can't believe my phone went off. That's ridiculous. It's a brand new phone. I didn't have to switch it off. I do apologize. Um, I may as well own that. Um, in terms of what you've just said, I mean, we know we know the stance that Mr. Trump has, and actually, you know, in terms of like really deprioritizing this agenda, and that has an impact on resources in in the army and military. Um, <clears throat> how much of an impact is that having on the NATO discipline around this? Because you have fantastic foresight capability that could be put that could be put to the use of nations across the piece to think about actually we know what might happen in terms of climate change we may we know what's going to happen in terms of conflict we know what happens when there's food or energy uh, shortage or starvation conflict arises and you know what to do especially when there's poor or little infrastructure what's your response to that in terms of how, how how's it panning out well I, I first of all I would I would not pin this down on, on the US president, I think there's a general reluctance of, of countries to engage in certain discussions that inevitably lead them back to their own national climate policies. You don't want to discuss the, the, discu uh, the, the, the linkage between coal and the climate goals. Uh, you don't want to discuss uh, the fact that in terms of, of CO2, nuclear is, 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 is good in terms of CO2, because the other neighboring country just went out of nuclear and finds it very bad. So you have to be, there's a, a natural reluctance, I think, of, of many institutions, not just of NATO, Indeed. to go too far in a direction that then basically reflects good, badly, usually, on, on individual countries. So there will always be a limit. Uh, your analysis uh, will always you know, hit a wall at one point um, if you go too far. So it's a matter of, of I think, uh, steady you know, uh, discussion, uh, moving the goalposts. But uh, a, we have to see also where the limits are. If we want to make progress, it makes no sense to run with the head against the wall. So I think this discussion is percolating, 
but it needs to be handled very carefully. So and it's, it's not just a US problem. No, it's uh, absolutely not. Problem. Okay, fine. I take that. And I'm going to press you on this. So it's, it's all rosy on the kind of NATO front. It's just about subsidiarity and nation states doing their own thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. And then a nation, uh, sorry, NATO is after all an alliance of, of sovereign nation states with sovereign climate policies. At least that's how they see it. Okay, I'm sure we'll have questions about that. Let's come back to that. But thank you very much. And thank you for responding to my questions. Tessa, I'm going to come to you. Um, obviously, you're the climate change coordinator at uh, the International Federation for the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. And I mean, I'm not going to kick off with a question about what you've just heard and the relationship between the army and, and uh, humanitarian agencies. I want to hear from you in terms of what kind of tools and approaches are you developing and adopting to ensure resilience at a local level? Because it's a very tricky thing to do because you're a humanitarian aid agency. You come in, you're not part of the infrastructure. So where there's little infrastructure or a lot of infrastructure, how, what is it you do to kind of, what tools do you use to increase or build that capability, that kind of resilience capability? Good question, thanks. So uh, for those of you who don't know, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies is a network of 192 national Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. So they are based within the national structures, generally in, in country. And right now we, we have 55 current active operations trying to reach 21 million people. And what is clear to us right now is that we will not be able to keep up with demand as a humanitarian agency in a changing climate. We have to change the way that we work. We have to become more anticipatory, um, more uh, sort of forward thinking, uh, smarter in our approach. So one tool that, that we're working on now is called forecast-based financing. So we're looking at how instead of, like in a normal humanitarian situation where finance may be released and action taken after the impact of a disaster, how can we actually use climate science forecasts and implement early action ahead of disasters and of extreme weather events? So what we're working on is uh, enabling financial mechanisms and, and the German government's been particularly sort of um, forward thinking with this, um, to be able to identify triggers, forecasts that would allow us to release funding and actually implement uh, actions, even distribution of food, water, um, hygiene kits, etc., ahead of the impact. So for example, in Cyclone Mora last year in Bangladesh, we were able to distribute cash ahead of the cyclone because we knew that it was coming. And these kinds of, uh, I guess, approaches will become more and more important in a changing climate. How can we make use of the available science and data to be smarter in how we respond and not just respond? Because, of course, our answer in a changing climate cannot be more, more response. It has to be less people in need. Um, so then I guess a, another sort of tool that we also um, are working on is called um, our vulnerability and capacity assessment, where we're working with communities on the ground to better understand the risks that they face. Because of course, disasters and impacts of, of climate change are dependent on vulnerability and on exposure, not just on hazards. So if we can strengthen um, exposure, well, reduce expo uh, exposure, strengthen resilience, then of course we will see less impacts. 
So this vulnerability and capacity assessment <coughs> framework or tool that we have is, has been undertaken now on over 60% of our national Red Cross, Red Crescent societies, but really working with communities in a participatory way so that they identify the risks that they face within their community using climate projections, using information from their meteorological offices to be able to better prepare for the kinds of extreme events that they're going to face. So th that, that's clear. So you kind of provide awareness um, and um, the kind of the knowledge base of what's going on, right? And you try and build confidence. But if you're going to do resilience, you actually need multi-sector partners to get their acts together and actually work together because at the heart of it, at the heart of it, a local, local situation, a crisis takes place, you actually need a multi-sector response to take place. And given that you're an agency that comes in and you have a presence obviously locally, are you seeing any kind of uh, development in that regard in terms of increasing um, cross-sector partnership work happening? Because you can raise all the awareness you want <laughs> and a community can be really aware about what's happening, but mm -hmm. actually it's the partners that need to work around them to lift them out of it or help them or down that journey. Absolutely, and it's clear that responding and um, addressing climate change will not be able to be one sector's responsibility, one, one institution, one government's responsibility. It really requires, as we know, a whole of society approach of, of different actors um, and different collaborations. So the Red Cross, Red Crescent is working in, in many countries directly with the governments, but also with different types of, of NGOs, with civil society actors in different collaborations. And I'm certainly happy to provide more examples on that. But um, we are certainly seeing um, a range of different actors that may not have previously been a part of sort of uh, disaster response, for example, but becoming more and more involved in, in climate change and okay. extreme events. All right, thank you very much. Going to that point, I'm gonna come to you, Sebastian, because obviously, um, based in Paris, you're the chief resilience officer uh, uh, for Paris. Uh, Sebastian, you're, you know, you're part of the initiative that the Rockefeller Foundation established, the 100 Cities uh, Resilience uh, uh, Group, which is an excellent initiative, actually, but you can say more about that. But that, 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 that point about, actually, if, if resilience at a local level is to work, you really need coordination and cross-sector partnership. How are I you doing it? I completely agree, and actually that's the, the role of my position. Okay. This new position within cities, uh, which is chief resilience officer, is a cross-cutting position. Uh, and that's the goal of the position, that is overlapping all the city departments and all the municipal organizations that are not from the city, actually, NGOs, private sector, and so on. So that's a huge goal, of course. It's a long journey uh, to, to get in there, but that's the goal, and actually it's working not too bad. Um, because the different, it's a, the resilience approach, it's actually, I completely agree with what was said before, uh, has to be a holistic approach. Uh, a syste systemic vision of the local development. If we're just looking at climate change without taking into account social inequity or air pollution or whatever, we're going to do mistakes like we did before. Uh, I completely agree. Uh, and so the, the two main challenges in our cities now are mainly climate change and social inequity. And what the resilience approach is proposing is, is to define solutions that are going to address both in the same time, using the same money, the same processes, the same organization, and so on. So that's the main thing, because uh, regarding climate change, who is at the forefront of the concrete consequences? It's the cities. Uh, 
people are not going to complain to their president of republic or to the UN because it's too hot in the schools for the children. They're going to complain to the mayor. Uh, and so uh, people are not going to, they do it a bit, uh, to complain to the national level uh, when they are afraid about migrations, for instance. But we know that the, the migration crisis, and I'm using this to talk about crisis in Europe, because regarding the number of immigrants, uh, we know that it's not. <laughs> uh, compared to what we are expecting, to what is, is coming, uh, especially relate, regarding climate change, the UN has numbers that are really clear about that. So we know that we're going to face with migration for decades that are going to be more and more. So we're, we've been treating that now as something exceptional, ad hoc, humanitarian, but we have to embed the solutions in the long term, in the functioning of all the cities. So that's, for instance, one of the role of mm -hmm. the chief residence officer, working with all the city, de de the, all the city departments, <coughs> other organizations to try to share a diagnostic and first action to try to address the challenges. Sure. I suppose what I'm trying to get to the heart of is that how is it working? Because, I mean, having worked with local government for many, many years, and I think local government's the same everywhere to a certain extent, people build empires. They don't like to share. They think, my budget's here, and it's all about power games that happen. How is it you're making a difference to actually get that to happen? I mean, what's, what, 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 what <coughs> levers are you using to get these people who really cherish their power and their budgets, especially in a city like Paris, to actually cooperate and collaborate? At first... I don't have any budget, and ah. I don't want <laughs> to. I definitely don't want to have a resilience budget within the other ones, or it has no chance to succeed. I'll get one million, but the total budget of the city is eight billion. So okay, I'm going to play with a little part of the budget to, to, to work on resilience, but the rest of the mainstream is going to do business as usual. So that's my budget is supposed to be the budget of the city. Sometimes my colleagues tell me that I'm the only one to believe in it, but uh, no, actually it's working not too bad because the different city departments see their own interest in it. And I remember, for instance, just a concrete example. We're going to turn, to transform our 700 schoolyards because we have many schoolyards, like all the cities in the world, which are made with concrete and that are participating a lot to the heat island effect everywhere in the cities. So we're going to change the material to green them, to put water in it, and to create cool islands everywhere in the cities that are going to serve both the children during school time and the elderly after school time to preserve health during heat waves. That's a complete integrated approach. Um, we convened seven city departments uh, around the table to work on this project. Uh, water department, energy department, uh, greening department, social affairs, uh, local democracy, and so on. They had never met before. <laughs> uh, that I'm was the surprised. pretext. <laughs> and they loved it. And actually, I remember this guy, an engineer, telling me, I I'm seeing now my job differently. Before, I thought it was I was just in charge of managing rainwater. And now I'm in charge of adapting to climate change. Uh, that's a huge... Uh, difference for the idea I have from my own job and they were thankful to us to build this cross-cutting approach because whatever is the, the city department people are aware about what's happening uh, and actually the siloed we've been facing in our cities in France are much more related to the political side than to the administrative one because you know it's, it's, we also have to take this into account I don't know how far but in France uh, a city council 
has majority with different deputy mayors from different parties. And so, of course, they have their own interests. So we also have to deal with this. So in all the different cha resilience challenges we identified in Paris, we considered that the main key is governance. It's not techniques. It's not technical solution. It's how we're going to onboard everyone to reach the solution we've been working on. Very good, absolutely. And that's not to patronize you at all, but I think the point of governance cuts across this whole piece, actually. But let's open it up to the colleagues in the audience. I want to would kind of see if there's any, what, what I'm missing from, from what we've had heard so far is a, private, a, a purely private sector, not purely private, but a private sector perspective on this issue. Because you could think that this situation has everything to be gained and lost for from the private sector. I mean, last year, uh, the figures b uh, for a, a major reinsurer states that 2017 was the costliest ever in history in terms of reinsurance, um, for obvious reasons, obviously, given, given all the security and climate issues that took place in the world. Are there any private sector people in the audience who could just share their views on this particular issue? I, ha I know that there are some people in the audience, because I've done my homework. Um, anyone bold enough? Shall I pick on you? Philippe? From NG, are you the here? He's not here. No, no, no. Okay, Thomas, from Governance Market Siemens. Clearly, my homework hasn't worked. I do apologise. They're not neither of them. Are there any private sector people in the audience here? Okay. Ah. I'm not private sector, or I could be private sector. <laughs> be both. That's okay. Doesn't matter. There's a mic coming to you. So my name is Vanya Veras. I have two hats today. I have the hat of Secretary General of Municipal Waste Europe, which is a group of local authorities, municipalities, mm -hmm. so I totally get it with the governance uh, issue, uh, working uh, to adapt waste management legislation at European level, basically to climate change and to circular economy and the linkages there. But I also have another hat, and that is cooling cities through greenery, through green and blue economy, specifically green walls and green roofs, and specifically for the Mediterranean, because that's where it's really needed at the moment. Um, there are a couple of questions that I have, a couple of opportunities we have in front of us with the people uh, on your panel that I would like to explore. The first one is there are various ac activities happening in Africa, for example, they're building a wall of trees. NATO is present in Africa. Could the army not assist to build the wall of trees faster? Because that's reclaiming the desert and it is addressing climate change, desertification, lack of food, lack of water. Where we plant, there is water, there's shade, so you can plant uh, things to eat uh, and cultivate animals uh, for meat. Um, there's also the possibility that both the Red Cross and the Army and the UN could collaborate to clean up the seas. Not only um, NGOs, not only citizens cleaning up the, um, uh, the plastic that is in the seas, the <coughs> vortex, which will take years and years. And the sea is just getting hotter and hotter, which is causing more hurricanes, which is causing more floods. Uh, we have all of these tools at our fingertips. 
but we're talking about it still. It is time to talk. It's time to put all the heads together, as you have done in Paris, so that action can be taken. If we put our heads together and all the funding, all the resources that are available within okay. all these institutions, Thank how you. long would it take us? Sure. There's a kind of quick, I mean, I let the speakers um, uh, respond, but there's something fundamental at the heart of what your question, your question is about purpose of, of the entities that are on, on the ground, which is quite an interesting one. <coughs> NATO first. Why not involve yourselves in building a green wall of trees? That never entered my mind, to be honest. But uh, uh, first of all, NATO is not in Africa. NATO has only a, a very small footprint in northern Africa, med southern Mediterranean shores. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the first, the first, uh, our first priority there is what we call defense capacity building. In other words, we try to work with the governments in the region and the, the militaries in the region uh, to, to build more, more capable militaries. Uh, this does not, at this stage, mean planting trees. It means at this stage, demining, for example, uh, helping them to, 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 hold, to hold their own. And uh, it, it has, until recently, for example, very much included uh, uh, strengthening some of these countries in their fight against ISIL. So these are our priorities. It's, it's hardcore security. Um, uh, as far as environmental security is concerned, um, an initiative that deals with, uh, with uh, environmental improvement, let's say, um, we have sponsored uh, through our Science for Peace and Security program for many years all kinds of activities, also in Northern Africa, for example, about uh, wind energy and, and, and similar issues. So. Uh, I remember once we had a we had a proposal about uh, pistachio trees planting in the Middle East, that was rejected because it was not seen as <coughs> very, uh, very smart. Uh, I don't know what 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 the specific reasons were. It didn't seem well thought through, but in principle, uh, the idea of having uh, of sponsoring certain uh, certain uh, initiatives, uh, if they are if they are well argued and and have a chance of of, of working out, uh, is is within within reach. Whether you want to take your, your soldiers, and we don't have many there, to actually do themselves this type of stuff, I, I have my doubts that nations will, will, feel, uh, will do that. I think they will feel that this is a distraction from, from their number one priorities. And I think that's the fundamental problem of these kinds of discussions, that uh, you come in with a certain priority and you expect everybody else to follow that priority, uh, whereas we, the exact opposite, have a certain list of priorities ourselves which doesn't always necessarily match, that we have to be clear about that. Tessa? Thank Cleaning you. up the ocean. <laughs> Indeed, a, a great suggestion. I mean, the, the network of the Red Cross Red Crescent is, is huge. We have approximately 12 million volunteers around the world, so the capacity to mobilise this network is enormous. Um, but we still have, have a long way to go. I mean, there's some great initiatives already happening in, in Kenya. The Kenya Red Cross is working with their government to, to plant 20 million trees, I think, by 2020 or something, something like that. Um, and we see the, the Pacific Island Red Cross National Societies doing clean-up beach days, etc. as well. But I guess for the Red Cross, Red Crescent, everything that we do has to be brought back to the humanitarian imperative. It has to show that link to human consequences um, and, and to humanitarian issues. And this is where the issue around collaboration, for example, with military that, that you brought up is, of course, a, a concern for us. So we have to be conscious about how we are seen to be and how we do collaborate with military actors. We have to ab abide by and be guided by our humanitarian principles of 
humanity, impartiality, neutrality, independence. And so this will always guide the way that, that we work and our, our priority will always be to reach and support the most vulnerable people. Um, and this is where I guess our biggest demand is more around sort of responding to extreme weather events, looking at adaptation um, needs, supporting communities where they need our help. Okay. Do you want to say something? On this one, on this particular issue about you know the, because at the heart of this actually it's not just about purpose. Is that at what point do people engage in prevention activities? Because we know actually, because that's the heart of your question, Madam, is that, that that you know if we did more now, um, we know what the root causes of some of our crises are. Actually, so if we did more now, it, it, which might mean that we have um, we have to adapt our originating purpose. But actually, it's not because if you prepare, then you'd be able to actually meet your originating purpose because you wouldn't be having to support people in, in crisis or deal with, uh, you know, pure security threats. What's your... I, I think exactly, as, as, as all of the speakers have said already, it's, it's easier to prevent than respond if you can. If you can avoid having people in humanitarian crises in the first place, then you're going to avoid having to respond to them at all. Um, over the next 15 years, we're going to spend $90 trillion uh, as a world on infrastructure. Um, and those decisions and the way we spend that money is going to be locked in and it's going to affect our chances, our children's chances, our grandchildren's opportunities for, for decades. And so really, it's, it's, it's a really good opportunity now to think about what kind of, um, uh, what, what kind of factors are defining how that money is spent and what, what, that's, what, that, what that achieves. And that's why I'm re actually really happy to, to hear my, my fellow speakers talking a lot about green walls and cool islands and, and, and different nature-based solutions um, as a way of addressing some of these issues. We have this amazing technology that already cleans our air, cleans our water, um, provides leisure activities, um, and it's called nature. And we can build that into the way we are designing our cities. By 2050, two-thirds of us gonna, are going to live in cities. As I said before, two-thirds of those buildings haven't been built yet. Um, the decisions we take now are going to determine um, what happens over the long term. And just, I can come back to the oceans question because I think it's quite kind of relevant as a prevention issue here. Um, I'm, uh, I'm not working on oceans myself, um, but colleagues are in UN Environment very closely working on, on oceans. And there's a massive issue with, with the, the plastic islands in the middle of the Pacific to, 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 to clean those up. But actually, that doesn't address the source of those, of that plastic pollution. So what we're trying to work with is to work with municipalities, with governments, to actually stop the, the release of plastics, reduce the use of single-use plastics, and stop that plastic getting into the environment in the first place. I, I don't have the figures to my mind, but I think three countries um, are produce something like 50% of the plastic pollution going into the oceans. So if you can address waste management in those countries, then you can have a massive impact over the long term. Okay, thank you. Um, back over to you. Any questions or queries from your side? I mean, so does some, some of this make sense? Does none of this make sense? Do you have kind of that question about, really? Um, how do you actually do this? Back there. Say who you are, please, first. Thank you. Pascaline Gabory, Pilot for Dev. Thanks a lot for all the uh, presentations. That was really, really interesting uh, and forward-looking as well. Thanks for bringing uh, resilience 
and also the question of uh, climate, not only as an opportunity, but as a security issue. I have one question for uh, Sebastian Lemaire, uh, which is uh, how do you make sure that uh, resilience is not only restricted to European cities, how do you make sure that other international cities are as ambitious and as resilient uh, um, face to uh, climate hazards? And that's the same question for oceans. We have a really ambitious plastic strategy at European level. But how do we make sure that uh, other countries can benefit from uh, the technologies? Thank you. Thank you, Pascal. Sebastian. Taking the example of the 100 Resilient Cities Network from the Rockefeller Foundation, that was the first goal. Have an international approach, both from the south, from the north, from the rich, from the poor, from the small cities, from the big cities, and these 100 cities working together is really diverse. Of course, we have the main ones, let's say the main capitals uh, of the world and so on, but we also have very small cities like Vaile, Denmark, 10,000 inhabitants, or Ramallah, uh, uh, Palestinian territories, for instance, which is 50,000 and, and so on. And so uh, the goal of this program was to show a way uh, and to create tools and to work with the private sector in each of these cities to build solutions. The, the local governments have to go in the residence direction, but the private sector in all these cities has to build the concrete solutions to, to, uh, to fulfill the goals. Um, and the ambition, but it's an ambition of course, is to switch in the coming years to 10,000 cities all over the world. But um, I, I'm quite optimistic because we're following the same movements and with sustainable development 20 years ago. Uh, I, when I started my career, I was complaining for my colleagues in charge of sustainable development because they were supposed to be the cross-cutting guys and nobody cared. Uh, and it's, it, it's not that a long time ago that it became something concrete in the municipal organizations. But, but fi finally, we did it. And now sustainable development is everywhere. In, all, in most of the cities in France, at least, it's embedded already. So it will be like this about resilience, the only thing is that it's going to take time and we don't have that much time. And I completely agree about your point on infrastructures, the infrastructure level, lever, not only for the Western countries, because of course most of the new ones are in the Southern countries, but it's huge because designing an infrastructure is designing the way uh, the, the territory is going to, to function uh, for half a century or a century. So it, it's, we can reduce inequity uh, building a bridge or a road if it's one of the target of the beginning. If it's not, and if the target is only to put trucks and cars on it, we miss something. And so the, the idea of this holistic approach is for each euro or US dollar that is going to be invested, how can we address the main challenges of the world? So we need indicators. We need tools, uh, management tools, uh, budgeting tools, and actually I've been working on it in Paris, and it doesn't exist that much. We have, of course, the SDGs indicators, but it's not enough to embrace the whole resilience approach. So we're looking uh, for uh, support from the international organizations uh, to, to, to create these technical tools that are going to make this money useful, this infrastructure money useful for the century. Okay. Thank you very much. Back to the audience. Uh, anyone got a burning issue on what you've heard so far? Or even just to make a kind of, uh, uh, what's your particular take on this, on this discussion? Gentleman there. Say again who you are. Thank you very much. 
Uh, Murray Beadler, UNESCO Science Water Division. Uh, you've all presented your mandates and where you work towards and how that defines what it is that you do. It reflects another front line on the climate change and risk uh, action, and that's policy. It's another form of mandate. The policies of today in most countries in the world for climate change, they don't exist in a climate change ministry and there isn't a overarching climate change policy. They tend to be anchored in the water sector, the energy sector, agriculture, forestry, transport, education, public health. How do you see how you're functioning in relationship to that policy landscape and where do you think it might be going tomorrow? Thanks. Tough one. Because it, it goes to the heart of it, doesn't it, actually? Because your point is well made. But it's the same about security. Because security might land just in one department, in national government, for example, rather than something which is a whole society, whole government approach. And there's something about how do you adapt policy thinking to our new, new context? Um, Tessa, what, what's, what's your take on this one? Because you have an interesting vantage point. Because you see the kind of gaps and where the cracks are and the fact that systems don't work. Absolutely, and I think it's a, it's a really crucial point. Uh, so the, the National Red Cross, Red Crescent Societies are, are auxiliary to government um, and in many cases are working with government on, on various development policy laws, etc. And, and what we see from our vantage point as sort of being involved very much in, in humanitarian response, first aid, etc., is that climate change tends to be dealt with by the Ministry of Environment or, as you said, the various different sectors and then uh, disaster response and disaster management with another sector, another ministry, another committee and they each have their own plans and they each have their own policies and often it ends up in these sort of parallel tracks rather than actually resulting in some integrated risk management as, as we would like to see it. So, um, for example, what we are working on now is working with a, a number of different other civil society actors to proactively engage in, in policy processes such as development of national adaptation plans, development of, of laws for disaster risk management and policies, and trying to make better linkages between the two so that you're using as a basis an understanding of the vulnerability and the capacity in the different contexts that you work and framing policies, etc., around from, from the ground up rather than from sort of different sector uh, points of view. Now, easier said than done, clearly. <laughs> but I think there are some, some promising uh, initiatives underway at the moment and, and bringing together different um, ministries, different uh, stakeholders. And in particular, I think a real, I guess, uh, important point here is the engagement of, of, of local actors, not only of local authorities, of course, but um, of, of different civil society actors and, and community perspective, community perspectives that are, you know, those people who are actually facing the impacts of climate change on a daily basis. So I think bringing in these different perspectives into the development of policies and plans uh, and trying to make the links between <laughs> these different approaches is a challenge, but it, it has to be done. And is it somewhat because you're kind of seen as an honest broker or you're outside of the political and power dynamic that you have greater chances of having that discussion with people? Because it's not your role to do that, <laughs> but no, I know. exactly. So I guess the, the advantage, as you say, of the, of the Red Cross Red Crescent Network is that we do, on one hand, have this auxiliary role where we are 
not government, but we have a legally mandated, recognised humanitarian role by government. And we are connected as well to the community. So we can be this sort of interlocutor between the communities on one hand who are at risk and then the, the government um, uh, authorities who are developing the plans, pri uh, policies, etc. And so to play this, uh, I guess, link of, of being able to help represent some of the community um, voices and the community concerns in these kinds of policy processes is key um, and certainly will okay. remain a, a big priority for us. Sebastian, is this is an obvious question for you, really, because uh, you made the point about governance, which I, I was hoping people would run, you know, come back to, because um, you've, you've explained the fact that actually part of the fact that yours is a cross-cutting role, and actually because you don't have money, uh, it helps. But tell us a little bit about what you think, or how successful you're being, or this, the city is being, in trying to be much more uh, resilient in its policy-making around these issues. The main... The one of good entrance point is the classical risk management. Risk management has been, well, we've been working on risk management in all our private or public organization for decades. Yeah. But it's not in a holistic way of thinking. One risk, one kind of solution, one kind of processes. And it doesn't take into account the, the links and the interdependencies between risks and more than all, uh, the inter interdependencies between the risk of major crises, shocks, that's disasters, catastrophes, that's what we, we, we have in mind usually when we think about resilience. But it's not enough. The money we're going to spend, the public money most of the time we're going to spend to try to address these main catastrophes that are going to occur twice a century or third a century has to be useful as well in the same time to address uh, daily stresses air pollution, uh, resources lack, uh, social inequity, uh, and so on. And so th that's the key. And we could easily convince uh, the people in charge of risk management to interlace their approaches, their processes. And we land on something that is uh, um, actually, w that is working worldwide. To be resilient, the first key is to know to know your neighbor, your neighbor. This daily-based solidarity, knowing each other at the neighborhood level, being able to respond uh, at any kind of crisis or daily problem, that's a huge key. And that's something that we completely lost in our big cities. It's still existing in the countryside, or, uh, but in our big cities, we don't really know if there is an elderly living two, two floors up. So if the building is burning, if we know that these people exist, we're going to think about her. If we don't, she's going to die. And that's the same for heat waves, for uh, all the challenges we're going to face. So there are, of course, there is this infrastructure level, which is huge, but there is also this real simple things, like uh, having a view of the vulnerabilities around uh, each other, like what is in my neighborhood, in my building, uh, and so that's why the Paris Resilience Strategies that you can uh, read uh, online, soon translated in English, so far it's only in French, but in the coming weeks it will be translated in English, mm -hmm. that is working in three pillars. At first, building resilience counting on the people, training the people, strengthening this local solidarity to the infrastructural level and urban planning. How do we change the, the, the making of the city 
material uh, and so on. And third, governance. How are we going to do all this with all the actors, uh, which time and territorial scale and so on. So, so this global approach helps to give a sense within the municipal organization to all the people who are supposed to be onboarded. And actually it's not working too bad because people believe in it. Um, and so far- Do the politicians believe in it? Yeah, Let's cut uh, to the heart of the matter. I think I could be fired if <laughs> I would if I okay. said the opposite. Okay. Uh, I, I mean the administrative that was an unfair part question, and, and but not it had in to the be political asked. one. Uh, let's say more and more. Okay, great. Two gentlemen here. So, gentlemen here first. Say who you are. Uh, thank you very much. I'm called Frank Katungwe. I'm from Uganda, and I work with the Uganda Embassy here in Brussels as the deputy head of mission. I want to thank friends of Europe, not friends of Africa. You should be friends of Europe and Africa, maybe, for inviting me. We are, absolutely. For inviting me and my colleague, Eunice here, you can stand up, for this very important mm -hmm. debate. Uh, maybe I will start by saying that when I was growing up in Uganda, we had a very good weather or a very good climate. Because Uganda being near the equator, it is only the rain season when it is used for planting. Then dry season used for harvesting. But now the dry season has been prolonged because of the climate. And this is because of the trees which has been cut down. We have, uh, we have a law which says when you cut one tree, you grow to you plant to. But you know, people, as you are saying, management, management, somebody cuts three and he plants nothing. So that one will affect the weather. Now in Uganda, we have, I may say, two problems. Plastics and refugees. Plastics, I think, originate from here. It should be also your duty, in a way, to introduce recycling plants at a reasonable price. But if the price is high, then the plastics still will affect the soils and the weather mm -hmm. or the climate of the country. Two refugees, yeah, uh, we have re about 1.4 refugees now in Uganda from South Sudan, mm -hmm. from DRC, Congo, from Burundi, and other areas around us. Uh, those refugees, anyway, we have been appreciated for, for offering uh, a very good refugees policy, whereby when they come in, they are given land to grow their seasonal crops and water, and the, but schools, they study with our people, and they go to the existing hospitals. But as a source of cooking, they are destroying very many trees per day. And we had a solidarity meeting in Uganda, which was attended also by the Secretary General of UN and many donors from here. But what they offered may not be sufficient enough to look after the 1.4 million people. There is Can I ask you, because you, you, we're, we're doing, obviously, we're doing a, a whole str a stream of work around Africa, and one of the questions, one of the issues for us is that the dynamic between leaders in Africa or those who are 
in the governance of Africa or those who are involved in the kind of civil society of Africa want a different deal and a different kind of take from Europe. They want the power dynamic to change quite fundamentally in the sense not being just a subject but actually a partner and a partner of change rather than being done to. Are you saying that that meeting that you had with the UN and partners, did it offer a different deal for you? Was it just words and no follow through? No, they, have, they offered some money which some of them have been paid and some who haven't been paid. Okay. As of today. Right. Which one will help to settle those people? But uh, still, if, you, if they are in an area where there is no electricity, they cannot use electricity to cook. They cut trees, which, which will poor management of environment, which will uh, affect the climate change. Sure. So uh, as we try to manage those people, we cannot chase them away. We would like you people, the developed countries, also to have a hand in managing those refugees. You see, refugees are like migration here. Me, I'm of the opinion that we should try to, to look at the causes of these uh, problems. Indeed. <coughs> yeah, we try to, to look, uh, we try to look at the solutions, but also we should try to look at the causes of these uh, this like the 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 cause of migration. Indeed, it, it is known. We try to 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 stop it or reduce it. The cause of refugees is known. Yeah. The cause why don't of why don't people just get on with it? Absolutely. Yeah, we should be good partners. I have heard most of you have got some projects in Uganda. It is better so through those people managing <coughs> the projects to be told of these problems we are facing. So that okay. they can become good partners. I thank, thank you very much, Mr. No. Kanan. Yes. I understand he, he was born in Uganda. He knows I, Uganda. I was, was a very good country. <laughs> you might come, come when you were young, but it is still good, by the way. You yes, I was born in Uganda. Yes, yes, and absolutely. I invite all of you, ladies and gentlemen, to visit Uganda as tourists to go and also see these problems <laughs> so that we can share the solutions. Can I say, so you're doing a much. fantastic role as ambassador uh, for Uganda. Well done, inviting everybody and uh, making that very strong comment and plea uh, for better partnership working. Gentlemen here, are there any other... Yes, great, I'll come back to you in a second. Gentlemen here, very briefly, because we are running out short of time. Thank you, I'll be very short. My name is Adel Gamal and I'm Secretary General of um, ERA, the uh, European Energy Research Alliance. <clears throat> and my question is about education, because we, um, you touched upon a fact that was very important to anticipate, both in terms of mitigation and remediation and adaptation. Um, and we know, you spoke about infrastructure, what needs to be done, but what is done really in terms of education? If you want to have a sustainable um, do you mean in approach schools? to it. Do you mean in schools or do you mean in communities? I mean in school, exactly. Okay. Because you spoke about training, but school is absolutely essential. And if we want to have the right political attention, as we have mentioned before, and a good traction from a political perspective, you need to have the desirability from the, from the future citizen on what needs to be done. So maybe this question is more for Sebastian Mayer, but of course <laughs> everyone is invited to Indeed. answer it. <laughs> and are you interested in how millennials are tackling this issue too? Because you've got five-year-olds and six-year-olds in New generation, but isn't there a question about how millennials who are going to begin going, gaining power in our society and be the biggest, most producers and consumers of stuff? Clearly they're a, 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 an interesting group that we perhaps don't um, engage in enough. Lady at the back, and I'll come back to you. Sorry, just there. Right at the back, with the glasses. Uh, 
Okay, thank you, Annabella Gago, uh, uh, from DG Home in the European Commission, dealing with innovation and the industry for security. I normally only want to like to intervene when I have a specific question, but I think I have an important in element of information. That's why I got the floor. Uh, I asked for the floor. So we are responsible for Horizon 2020 mm. funding for research for secure societies. And secure societies includes disaster resilient societies. So in DG Home, we are funding the programs, the projects, to address both human factors research in the area of disaster resilient societies and uh, also for technologies to address uh, the same topic. Uh, for instance, projects how to address mega fires, we, we are funding some of these projects. So when uh, uh, Tessie, you mentioned that we need to use more science in order to anticipate uh, the threats, this is part of the work that we are funding. Uh, also, uh, is it part of the current program or will it be part of the future program? So that's key, because you're going to it's all going to so change. So the current call for 2018 is running with the deadline end of August. Uh, and we have in the call for 2018 two topics or two subtopics and the disaster resilient societies, one addressing human factors, the other addressing new technologies in these areas, okay. of relevance for these areas. So this was very important. And the other point is, in our work, what is fundamental uh, for research to be ultimately useful for practitioners and for the Red Cross on the ground and for cities, for the work you are doing, is that uh, the end users, the practitioners like we call them, can inform us of your needs. So to connect the practitioners, to collect their needs and to transmit their needs to the research world involving industry is key Absolutely. for successful <laughs> and useful projects. So this is part of the work. We will have a dedicated full week in June on disaster resilient societies with what we consider our community of users. So if you need information afterwards, I'm here. Okay, but thank the you. question is we really need you to communicate to the research community uh, your needs so that the research is targeted to the needs. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, as Friends of Europe is part of a consortium of you know, Shape Energy, we're clearly trying to bridge the gap between research and practitioners. But it is a two-way street, and I think it's, it's, it's really important, it's really important that we be get both sides of the coin, if you like, to engage and not wait for one partner to come forward. And I hope that also in the review of H2020, in the next tranche of funding, actually, it's going to be key that this issue isn't lost sight of. I'm sure that it won't be, but it'll be good to make sure that it isn't. Um, Colleagues, I want to uh, wrap up, so, but I want to kind of start with you, Sebastian, in terms of kind of responding to the question of, uh, of um, education, um, both at, at a school level, but perhaps that question of millennials and what, what they're up to in terms of how they're going to shape the world in the next 20 years. But start with the children. At first, I want to start with DG Home and Ash 2020, just to say that I'm personally partnering a few projects that are going to land on your desk, I guess. So. <laughs> I wish you remember this discussion. So you um, come to f <laughs> you come to an event, you get advance notice of funding and potential to lobby. Here because you go. we there really you go. had identified these opportunities, and actually we've been working. My main support are researchers, 
and I'm, I'm based on the research to push the, the concrete implementation actions. Uh, so so we, I need, uh, we are not evaluated by um, private uh, bureau d'études, I never know how you say that, if there is a French private consulting firms, uh, but by researchers and labs, university labs. And we have one evaluation process for each of the 35 actions of the Paris Residence Strategy in a goal of scaling up, Capitali capitalization, at first on the research word, then on the practitioner's word, uh, and so we are really working close with the researchers. We can follow, follow up the discussion if you want. Uh, about uh, education, we've been uh, working a lot on this, despite the fact that it's complicated for the city, because in France, education is not on the municipal's purview. Uh, it depends on the national level. So we have a small space, uh, two times a week or three times a week, so it's the extra school time, but it's within the school. But the municipality is managing these times with its own animators and teachers and so on. And so we've been, uh, this year, starting new uh, modules, new training uh, for the children that are based on the transformation of the schoolyard, that I said before. Actually, we're using the processes of the schoolyard transformation because we've been work is the, the children themselves are designing the new schoolyard. So they've been involved in workshops and so on. And so that's the great occasion to talk about climate change, to talk about migration, to talk about uh, water management and the cycle of water and not only uh, the river management and so on. But to be honest, we're just starting. Mm. I, I don't know yet uh, how it will work. Uh, it starts, it's starting little, we have just three schools as pilots this summer, so, but the, the goal is to scale up as soon as possible. But we also want to educate the oldest one, and not only the youngest. You know, we've been, we did that a lot for sustainable development. We will never change the adults, so let's keep, let's uh, invest on the future generation, because if we train them since the youngest age, it will work. But now it's too late. We can't wait the youngest to be adults to face the problems. So we definitely need as well, actually, to teach the people who are in charge now, mm. mostly 50 to 60 years old, the people, the bosses of the public organization, of the private organization, and so on. They should be the main target of education at the moment because they are the deciders of what we've been talking about. So uh, we've been developing little by little, uh, training problem for the whole population. And we are um, inviting in each Paris district people, volunteers, to be trained to climate change, to flooding, to terrorist attacks. And actually, we've been partnering with the Red Cross, and we experimented. We were the first uh, in France to experiment these tools. I guess it's the same you, you talked about, residence check. Uh, something maybe it's typical of French, I don't know. But uh, the Red Cross is one of our partners to train the people and not only the children. Absolutely, I, I, and I look forward to the day when um, the 50, 60-year-olds who are in charge are um, given performance targets on this issue, because uh, actually that's where it would matter, that actually if in a municipality it was, pay it was docked by your pay or your performance, that is chief exec or level and directorate level, things would change for certain. I've seen it happen in London in different parts. I'm going to just say, what's your... As a kind of concluding remark, um, Oli, what's the one thing that you think is critical that needs to happen in the next 10 years from your perspective on this agenda? It's a really tough question, I know, but if there was a one thing you wanted to leave this audience thinking about, what would that be? 
I'm going to steal Sebastian's point, which I think was a really good one, which is making every, every dollar work fur further, work more, every euro that we invest so that it has a dual purpose, um, so that when we're thinking about it, that whatever we do, we're investing in resilience has a social goal as well. And give a good example from Bangladesh, where in, early, in the early 90s in Bangladesh, there was a, a very serious flooding, very serious typhoon, uh, drowned something like 130,000 people in 40 minutes. Um, and since then, um, they've in invested a lot in community resilience and in dual purposing uh, community infrastructure like schools also as storm shelters. Um, and so you can have uh, infrastructure that provides the school space or, the, or the, the municipal space that is also a place to flee to. Very simple idea, but that has led to, um, despite massive increase in population, dramatic dramatic you know, reductions um, in, in the overall mortality and loss of lives as a result. At the same time, right now in Bangladesh, with the Rohingya crisis, we have many hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees around the Cox's Bazar area um, who don't have any of that infrastructure at all. At, with the rains just started last week, mm -hmm. major risks of landslides, flooding, um, and, and a really a very serious humanitarian crisis um, compounding an existing humanitarian crisis right around the corner. So again, and it's, it's, it's an, an example in the same country as to how um, having that infrastructure working in multiple ways can be tremendously powerful. But also not learning from it, unfortunately, which is just the sad aspect of it. Um, Tessa, last point from you, what the thing from your perspective, what's that one thing you want to leave this audience thinking about as you see the big challenge or the big issue? I guess um, from, from our perspective, um, as the climate change debate continues, as the climate security nexus sort of strengthens, what we are concerned with is that we lose sight of the, the most vulnerable people in the last mile, that it gets caught up in the sort of the big national political domain and we neglect the people in Cox's Bazaar, for example, who are the most vulnerable, getting uh, impacted by various threats uh, all merging together. And this is what we see, that those that are most vulnerable to climate change are those who are also exposed to various other threats of urbanisation, tensions, conflicts, um, natural resource depletion. And they are generally not always the first priority for government action. And so this is where I guess our plea is let's not lose focus on the people who are feeling the impacts of climate change now. Um, and this, uh, I guess, is in the debate about climate change, it's often talked about as a future issue, but it's here, it's now, it's happening, and we are seeing the impacts on the ground, and let's, let's not lose sight of, of those the most people. vulnerable who are currently experiencing that. Um, it's good, well, well, point well made. Michael. Last but not least. My, my favorite motto is uh, the rule of Noah. Predicting rain doesn't count, building arcs does. <laughs> and therefore, uh, for an institution that doesn't have a specific portfolio in this, in this uh, arena, Indeed. Uh, <coughs> it is education. Uh, it is education it is, uh, that has different levels. It can be reaching out to the scientific community. Uh, it can be, as we do, run uh, courses about environmental protection in the military, in our schools. Uh, but it is really education, uh, and uh, we don't educate six-year-olds, but uh, still people come to NATO, <coughs> some of them when they're fairly young, or to the military when they're fairly young. So I think there is a st still a fairly good chance to educate people about the new dimensions of security policy, and that will then hopefully lead to a sort of curiosity about the solutions. 
Okay, thank you. Colleagues, I hope we've um, stimulated your thoughts sufficiently on this particular agenda. If you cast a glance back to 9-11, okay, just go back to 9-11 and then go year on year through to last year and think about the events that have actually struck us and how both on the security front, uh, what's happened in our cities and um, our states, and you think about the impact of climate change both on our cities and our communities and our nations across the board, resilience is ha going to have to be key to actually addressing how we are able to be prepared but also bounce back from things that are only going to get worse if we don't prevent or take preventative action or think clearly and learn. The Bangladesh question, the Bangladesh example is key, but that's not because it's in Bangladesh. We have that question here, actually in Europe, where we d we one state does not le learn from one city to the other and still makes the same mistake. Um, so let's hope that we've been able to connect the dots and debate the right issues and think about change that needs to take place. Um, keep an eye on our website for our next series of events on of such issues. And we look forward to welcoming you again to um, our event and discussions about climate resilience and also peace, security and defence. Um, let's thank our speakers in the usual way. Thank you very much for being so... <laughs> thank you. Thank you, we'll see you next time.